Hello, parents. Rebecca Rowland is a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and serves on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She's also an oral and written language specialist in the neurology department of Boston Children's Hospital and is a nationally certified speech pathologist who has worked clinically with kids of all ages. And she's the author of the new book, The Art of Talking with Children, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Creativity, and Confidence in Kids. Rebecca, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. So what was your goal with this book? So I'm really interested in bringing conversation back into our conversation. Um, basically talking about the power of conversation with kids, um, realizing how much we're often on autopilot with our kids and how much we can do, uh, whether you're a parent, teacher, anybody who interacts with kids um, to enhance your relationship. So why do conversations with our kids matter so much? Well, we're at a time when I think we kind of have a perfect storm of factors. So we're basically dealing with lots of stress, anxiety, disconnection, kids who've been out of school. And now more than ever, kids are seeking connection. They're seeking ways to process their experiences. And conversation can do that basically better than anything else can. So this book is broken up into eight different chapters. Chapter one is what rich talk is and why we're missing out. So what is rich talk? Yeah, so I think about rich talk as the way forward to have meaningful interactions or conversations with kids. Um, there's three parts. So it's adaptive. There, I call the ABCs of rich talk. So A stands for adaptive, meaning that you're going with the flow of your child, their mood, their temperament, and so on. B is back and forth. So we often talk, I say at our kids or to our kids, but we don't always talk with our kids, meaning that you know, they have the opportunity to respond as well. Um, so that back and forth we found is really critical in building their skills. And C is child-driven. So actually thinking about starting with what's on a child's mind. It might be positive, it might be negative, but when you can actually start from there, rather than coming with your own agenda, conversations can be so much more powerful. Yeah, and I think it's important also that kids come to their own conclusions, even with your maybe nudging assistance at times versus you offering that unsolicited advice and constantly trying to tell them how they need to be thinking about things too. Exactly. Yeah, I think we often think we're going to teach kids by talking at them, but actually they're not often listening when we do that. So coming to their own conclusions actually is much more effective for sure. Yeah, no question. Now you studied how much interactions between teachers and students matter on classroom goals and also how much support the teachers provided. What did you learn there? Yeah, so I actually found a big distinction between um, what we call mastery climate so and achievement climate. So mastery meaning that um, mistakes are seen as part of the learning process. Actually, we see that um, learning is a journey and children don't feel ashamed of not knowing. They say, okay, well, what else can I do? They take an active approach. Whereas achievement means they're really seeking to be the best, to finish fastest, you know, to get ahead. And what I found is that actually when teachers encourage the mastery, so they encourage the mistake making and talking about mistakes and learning as a journey, children actually achieve more and they're also more motivated. And that effect is actually more as students get older. So even in sixth grade, it's the most, um, most salient. And I sort of was theorizing that that's maybe because children are so involved and invested in competing with one another that they get distracted from actually learning. 
Yeah, on the subject of mastery, I actually have two kids at home, seven and five, who have just completed the Montessori schooling, and they're now going into the public school. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit concerned that we are shifting from this idea of practicing, uh, fully engaged in, and eventually mastering certain skills versus the rote learning that is the uh, primary means of trying to teach kids at the public level. Yeah, I mean, I would say the good thing is that I think it varies so much by teacher. So there are some things that are set in terms of a curriculum and so on um, in public schools, but teachers do have so much leeway in terms of the way they talk about learning. So I wouldn't say it's as black and white as, you know, Montessori being, although, you know, Montessori I've seen has, um, does a great work um, in terms of this mastery approach often, but I do think it often comes down to a teacher and how they're talking about how kids are learning. So pressure to succeed often leaves kids stressed. This, of course, includes young kids as well. Where is that line, though, where a parent's encouragement and assistance to help his child to do well could go from productive to harmful? Yeah, I think it really involves taking cues from a child. So I really emphasize in the book that so kids are so different in terms of the amount of you know, nudging or encouragement that they need and benefit from versus what is too much. Um, so as a parent, as an educator, I really support parents to find that line. You know, where is it that the child seems to be flourishing, thriving, asking for more versus where does a child shut down or say, you know, they seem shy, they seem not wanting to do something. So I think when you can find that line for each child is where you can find the sweet spot. What's the proper way to help a child who is venting a lot of frustration? Yeah, I would want to go and ask questions. So I emphasize a lot of sitting with a child and really just getting to understand their thought process. So rather than saying, we're going to fix the frustration, which is, you know, what we often do um, with the best of intentions, actually sitting and saying, well, let's get more into this frustration. What specifically about it is frustrating? And then putting the onus and responsibility in some part on the child. What can you do to fix it? So rather than feeling like we need to come in and save the child, really supporting them to be more active there too. You also point out that kids experience big jumps in reading. My five-year-old has actually just gone through this. Can the same be said with conversational development where it's not necessarily this linear process? Definitely. Yeah. So we see big jumps in terms of not only how kids are speaking, but even in terms of how much they're able to attend. Um, so one aspect, the executive functioning, um, just involving attention, prioritizing, and so on has a big jump from say ages three to six. So that preschool age, kids are really learning, say, how to, you know, stay on topic, how to attend to their friend, things like that, um, and perspective taking and so on. So we often see around ages four to five, that kids are able much more to take someone else's perspective, whereas before, it's just really difficult for them. What is embodied face-to-face -face conversation? So this is the conversation where you're actually sitting with a person in a room or outside, um, with no devices, no distractions, nothing between you. So this is actually what I consider kind of the best of the both worlds in terms of being able to interact, engage, but also to really um, notice and respond to all of the cues a person's giving you um, on Zoom, et cetera, even though it's great and we do a lot of, you know, a lot of great work through audio, visual, we are still missing that those other senses that really help us connect with a child. And the way that our kids and us use technology really does have a negative impact on rich talk at times too, correct? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's all the way we use it. So sometimes, you know, parents have said to me, oh, should I not have my, you know, my kids talk to their grandparents on Zoom? You know, and I think, no, of course not. So if that's the way they connect, 
it's better than not connecting, obviously. Um, but at the same time, yes, I think we are using technology often to disconnect, to avoid conversations and so on. And it becomes a default. So if your phone is constantly there and you experience even a minor frustration, so often both parents and kids go to their phones to avoid the frustration rather than actually moving through it um, through conversation. Yeah, we've recently come to the conclusion that going to YouTube from time to time to help answer the multitude of questions that are coming my our way when we inevitably don't know the answers. It's easier to say, I don't know, and then have uh, some expert on YouTube help explain what the deal was there. Definitely. Yeah. So I often see Google YouTube as a great resource. And so I don't, you know, I don't advocate banning phones, banning technology, um, but especially just being conscious and intentional about the way we use them, you know, in order to answer those questions, to go on some kind of learning journey rather than just to distract ourselves. Chapter two is conversations for learning, sparking your child's lifelong curiosity. What is the end goal of learning, Rebecca? Yeah, so I would say the end goal of learning is for kids to find their passions and pursue their passions. So it really goes much beyond achieving, gaining specific skills, but we want children to become lifelong learners who understand their strengths and weaknesses and who want to pursue their passions. What is the growth mindset and how can we help cultivate this in our kids? Yeah, so the growth mindset is something um, Carol Dweck has really talked a lot about, which is the idea that we can improve with effort. So basically not just I'm bad at mathematics because I'm not smart, but maybe I didn't do well on this test because I didn't study. So it's all about the ways and the reasons we give for our success or lack of success and the openness to improving with effort. Um, and setting that growth mindset early is so critical in terms of helping kids actually you know, gain skills by putting in more effort rather than just saying, oh, it's a part of me that I'm either good or bad at something. Yeah. And you're touching on positive and negative self-talk there. Positive self-talk is obviously extremely important. What should a parent do if he or she sees her, his or her child muttering to themselves negative talk too much? Yeah. I mean, I would really talk to the child about that. Um, I would start by helping the child understand that this kind of self-talk isn't really serving them. So you can really talk with a child, even a young child, about, you know, how do you feel when you say those things to yourself? How, what do you do afterwards? And emphasizing that if we want to improve, that all starts with how we talk to ourselves. I think at the same time, the modeling is so important. So we often forget that kids are always listening when we're muttering to ourselves as well. So I think, <laughs> you know, just being attentive, knowing that we're always going to, you know, things are going to happen, but if we can watch and even catch ourselves and try to repair that, it's also really important. When considering how Rich Talk can help kids learn, you started using the three E's as a good guide. That would be expand on a child's thinking, explore aspects beyond the here and now, and evaluate the process and product of thinking with a reflective, compassionate eye. Do you have a good example of this in action? Yes. So, um, for example, say a child just um, sees a robot, you know, going along and it's broken and the child, maybe young child says robot doesn't work, you know, something like that. And so expanding, you might you start to expand on what the child says. So make it longer, make it, um, you know, bigger, make it make the sentence you know, have more details. So start to investigate. So, for example, oh, yes, that robot does look broken. Um, then exploring why do you think the robot's broken? You know, do you think it's the lack of batteries? Let's look at it. Let's go beyond kind of 
the here and now was in front of us and talk through, you know, do you think how long have we had these batteries in? Look at the history. You know, what would happen if we, you know, put in bigger batteries than it needs? Can we fit them in? You know, all this kind of exploring and evaluating being afterwards, you take a look at it. Did it work? What our strategies were? What else could we try? And modeling that helps children with their self-awareness. So later on, when you're not there, the idea is that they can go through this whole process either on their own or with friends or peers. And encouraging a cultivation of uh, somebody who loves to read, you talk about engaging in books with a child and then also something called the five finger rule. What is the five finger rule? Yeah, so this is something that teachers probably have, may have heard of, especially if you're in early education or elementary, um, which is just that you should have about five words on a page for a child that are too hard to read. And if you have more than that, it's too hard of a book. And if you have less than that, it's too easy of a book. Um, and this is a rule that many, many parents and teachers constantly use. And I don't think it's a terrible rule, but at the same time, I think people have stuck too firmly to it. Uh, I had so many parents and teachers tell me, oh, your child shouldn't read this book. It's too hard for them. Um, but my child really wanted to read the book. You know, and so at that point, it becomes less a question of following the child and more about following a rule. So I advocate really focusing on what the child's interested in and supporting them in that rather than sticking to some kind of arbitrary rule like that. You described a concept that I hadn't really considered before, but there is a way to foster metacognition with kids. That is to have them think about thinking. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so I mean that we're always, um, we're always thinking, obviously, but we don't always take the time to talk about kind of the quality of our thinking or how our thinking is working for us, how effective it is. And it's actually pretty simple, but you can do this with even young kids to model for them um, kind of the ways in which their thinking is or isn't um, working for them. This is, looks, you know, something like, for example, um, you know, say you're trying to fix your car and you say, oh, I thought it was the, you know, the, it didn't have enough oil, but I checked the oil and it does have enough oil. So now I realize my first impression was wrong. You know, what else could I, could I do? So you're starting to realize and kind of get a handle on, well, what is your thinking like? What's correct? What's incorrect? Um, and you're strategizing out loud. And doing this is so key um, in helping children kind of take ownership of their learning. The U.S. introduced common core standards in 2010. How did this change public education in America? Yeah, so I would say that in some ways, um, it kind of standardized things. So oftentimes states have had, you know, wildly different um, standards before this. But at the same time, it did create kind of this pressure to all you know, push forward to have kind of achievement in math and reading be kind of the factors that define education. And so in doing so, we've lost a lot of the other subject matter. We've lost a lot of even critical thinking that takes more time than these specific skills. And so, and we're oftentimes using kind of a deficit model saying this child's falling behind, this child isn't meeting benchmark, which at some, some level does help us realize that a child's not developing skills, but also, can avoid having those bigger discussions about the purpose of education. Hmm. Chapter three is conversations for empathy, fostering your child's understanding of others. So what is empathy? And is there a best method to talk with children about empathy? Yeah, so I've really um, gone to the research and found empathy is often considered to have three parts. So we think about it maybe as one thing, but it really can be broken down into three. Um, the first is more cognitive or mental. So taking someone else's perspective. The second is more emotional, so kind of feeling into another person's feelings. 
And the third is what's called compassionate action. So actually you feel someone's feelings and you're moved to do something. Um, so simply having empathy for another person and stepping away isn't really a full expression of empathy. Um, so yeah, so in terms of talking about what to do, I would say really supporting children with each aspect of that process. So thinking about, well, how might this person feel in this situation, but also how can this specific person be helped? So rather than saying, let's just help everyone the same way, actually taking someone's perspective um, really does help other people in the way they want to be helped. Say maybe your neighbor wants flowers if they're sick, but maybe they want to be visited you know, and brought cookies or whatever. So actually each individual has their own ways in which they want to be supported and recognizing that individuality is really key. You say that every child has an empathy profile. Is what you just said there play into the idea of an empathy profile? Definitely, yeah. So some kids, I would say, are very, very emotional to the point that say, they can oftentimes feel even too much of their, their peers' feelings, for example. So if your, their friend starts crying, they immediately start crying. Or they say, you know, my friend's having a bad day, so that means I'm having a bad day too. They really empathize to such an extent that it's hard for them to draw boundaries. Um, other children have sort of an opposite um, difficulty in that they struggle to feel the emotions of another person. And so when a friend is crying, they struggle to understand why that friend might be upset. Um, so really recognizing where your child falls on that spectrum is really helpful in terms of figuring out, well, what can I do next? How can I best help? How does empathy mean also to accept a certain level of mystery? Yeah, so really empathy means recognizing that we can't fully know another person. So we say, let's walk a mile in this person's shoes, but in fact, we don't really know what those shoes are like, mm -hmm. never fully. Um, and so recognizing that really supports us to say, well, we can do our best. We can try to make our best guesses, but the, really the best way to know another person is to engage with them, to interact with them, to ask questions and sit with them, um, and not to make all the assumptions that we necessarily make about a person. How can the three E's help to shape emotionally intelligent kids? Yeah, so I would say by actually taking the time to expand on what someone's saying, to explore how they're feeling, um, and then to evaluate if we were correct or not correct, it really is the foundation of empathy as well. Um, so realizing that empathy comes through series of conversations, it comes over time, and through having these kind of expansive and reflective conversations. Chapter four is conversations for confidence and independence, encouraging your child to embrace challenges. Kids love to help. I have uh, two in my house who are uh, great examples of that. Is there a right way to have them help and why is it so good for them? Yeah, so really kids do want to be a part of a community. So we've often forgotten that when we talk about, you know, rewarding kids for chores or begging them to do things. Um, oftentimes we've forgotten the fact that kids have an innate urge to help us to be part of something bigger than themselves and to feel accomplished, to feel as if, oh, I have done this, I have contributed to my community. Um, and so finding a way that that child can help at their age and stage, but even with their temperament, can really support them to feel good about that. So maybe your child you know, is really good at math. And even if they're young, you know, they can count money or sort your money into different jars. You know? Or maybe they're, they're older and they can help with the budget. Um, if they're in high school or something like that. So really kind of finding what's already a strength or an interest of a child and helping them build on that, it shows them that, yes, here I appreciate your gifts and also you're able to support the community of the family. 
there's a pretty wide chasm amongst parenting experts in terms of how much verbal praise should be offered up in situations like that. So for you, how much verbal praise should be doled out if a kid does help to do something, whether they knew it, do it correctly or not, and just telling them good job, well, way to go, and just trying to make sure to offer them the right amount of support. Yes. I mean, I definitely, I'm somewhere in the middle there. I think it's always important to have a balance. I know there's some experts who say, you know, they hate the words, good job. And they say, you know, never say that. But I mean, I think that's a little extreme. I, yeah. I think what I do want to get away from is this kind of overpraise. So there is research showing that, you know, if a child, especially who feels bad about something they've done, you know, and you say, oh, that's so amazing. It's so incredible, you know, and kind of in a false way, that child tends to realize that it's a bit false and even can feel worse about themselves. So that's kind of where I emphasize getting away from. I do think that saying, you know, good job or thanks for helping or, you know, whatever. I don't think that's quote unquote bad for children. Um, I do think it's helpful to be specific. So what exactly about that was helpful? That really gives kids more information than just saying good job, you know, saying, oh, I wouldn't have known how to do that part or that part is really tedious for me. So I'm glad you helped me with that, you know, something like that. But, um, but I, yeah, I think the good job is not, it's not a curse word. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you on that one. So in an effort to help, oftentimes kids obviously make a huge mess. Why is this not only okay, but a healthy thing for them? Yeah. So I think that recognizing that mess is inevitable, we do need to work on cleaning it, but even to help children recognize that, yes, in their attempts to help, there will be this, you know, possibly counterproductive mess happening. Um, and to allow them to realize that, but also to recognize, well, what do we want as a family or as a classroom? You know, we want order in some ways, and how can we get things back into order? That even helps them with this repairing process. So both making the mess in helping and then recognizing, okay, now I need to do something about this. That's going to give them skills they can use later on as well. Hmm. Chapter five is conversations for building relationships or cultivating your child's social skills. How do friendships develop in phases? Yeah, so oftentimes um, we think about friendships as kind of a one size fits all, but children are always developing in terms of their abilities to connect with friends, um, especially when they're younger. They often think in much more simple terms. So things like, oh, this friend has a nice pool. So I like going to their house or, you know, this friend has nice candy that their mom gives them, something like that. Um, but as they get older, they're much more able to take others' perspectives to see kind of what specifically they like about friends and even to comfort friends. So helping them from younger ages move towards those more kind of advanced or nuanced um, levels of friendship is really helpful. And is there something that we can do to help kids see their many social aspects too? Yes, I think um, to help kids recognize that all of us kind of fit on a profile of um, social skills. So it may be that for some of us, you know, meeting new people is really difficult, but it's much easier once you already know them. Uh, helping kids recognize where they fall in their different social aspects. Say, you know, is it easier for them to empathize when someone's upset, but it's harder for them to celebrate with someone else? Something like that. It helps them see kind of where are their strengths and where are places they can grow. And that helps them become a better friend. So we all need downtime and playtime, Rebecca. I don't care if you're uh, an adult or a kid, but this is obviously especially true for kids. But what is play? Yeah, so really play is something that applies to people of all ages. So I would say children, but also adults. Um, it's not so much just playing sports and games, although that's the way we typically talk about play. 
it has much more to do with attitude. So it's the way you engage in something, the way you're thinking about something. So I often use the example of running. So you might run, um, you know, out of motivation to get exercise or your doctor said to do that. So it's not really a playful thing, um, but you might run instead out of enjoyment. You might run because you enjoy the feeling of it and you might play around, you know, you might say, well, I wonder how far I can run. You might set challenges for yourselves. So in that way, you're taking a much more playful attitude towards the same activity. It might look the same as the other one, but it's actually very different. And how does the right kind of play benefit a young brain? Yeah, so we know that play does so much for young children, so much so that, you know, we know species of other, you know, other species are also playing um, in their young all of the time. So it develops their brains. They're sort of social brains as they problem solve. It helps them collaborate with others because they're constantly figuring out, well, what game should I play? Develops their language skills and their social skills as they need to negotiate with others. So in every area of their lives, um, play is really critical. Troubling research has found that kids are less creative than the past. And this is a trend that's been going on since the 1990s. Why are our children less able to generate unique and unusual ideas while also being less funny in the process? Yes, I mean, this is disturbing research um, suggesting that children actually have declined in their average creativity over time. And I think there are a number of factors, but really critical in that is the sense that they aren't given a lot of playtime and downtime to be able to think out of the box. Their activities are often very structured. And even their responses are very structured. So sort of what is the right answer? What is the right way to do this? Um, is often very much boxed in. So they're not actually encouraged to talk out of the box, to think out of the box, or given downtime in which to explore those ideas. How much do you think screens are impacting this too? I think screens have a role. I wouldn't say it's the primary factor, but I do think especially passive use of screens. So a lot of research showing, you know, scrolling through endless videos or scrolling through TikToks or something like that is much, uh, you know, is detrimental to children's brains. Whereas other, you know, other uses of screens, such as, you know, watching a documentary or something like that, you know, there's probably much more learning happening. I love to read about this because I still see it play out every Christmas uh, in my house. But what is the cardboard box principle? Yeah, so this is a principle, uh, which you may have seen in your own, I've definitely seen in my house, is that you might spend all this money, effort, and time buying what you think are the best presents. You lay them out on Christmas Day or, you know, whatever holiday, and um, your child only wants the cardboard box. <laughs> so really saying that the simplest presents, the simplest things in the house are often the things your child most enjoys playing with, um, that we can really get away from buying more, doing more, and thinking about the other uses of really simple objects. You also explain how playful conversations supercharge the imagination. What are playful conversations? Yeah, so I think of playful conversations as um, started often with questions. So things like, what if we, or how could we? These are conversations that allow us to think of multiple options, different possibilities, and start to be okay and even happy with ambiguity. Things like, this might not be the only way to do it. Let's think of other ways. So how could we... Um, make this robot move upside down? How might we, you know, make it work if we were in outer space? So we're starting to really play around with ideas to examine and explore without a singular focus on being right. And how can video games also be a positive for kids? Yeah, so oftentimes we hear such video games always linked in kind of negative tones in these uh, most parenting books, but I really 
seen that the research doesn't necessarily support that. Um, so actually some of these games, whether it's Roblox, whether it's Tetris, you know, these games where children are building, where they're communicating with others, it really does allow them to examine multiple possibilities as well. I wouldn't want to overemphasize video games and have kids play them all the time, but I don't think they are, you know, uniformly bad as many um, books suggest. Yeah, there are also age appropriate games too, obviously, but we just brought this new Super Mario Brothers game for the Nintendo Switch. And you can play four players at once, but you really have to learn to work together in order to pass the levels. And that requires you to communicate and make sure whichever person is going first and that somebody's not getting too far ahead of everybody else. Mm -hmm. It is something that I think that I've really changed my mind on over the last couple of years is I've started to read more uh, insightful uh, information and research from folks like you who have uh, who really started to shed light on how it can be a positive too. Definitely. Yeah. And I've seen that in my own house too. I think uh, some people have said, oh, your children play video games. Actually only my, my older daughter who's 10, but um, I still, I do think that there's a lot of positives that can come out of it. Definitely. So chapter eight is conversations for temperament, bringing out your child's best. What is temperament? So temperament is kind of an aspect of personality um, that is partly biological, but is partly shifting over time. So it has to do with kind of how your child is as a person with different aspects. So kind of how active they are, how much energy they have, what their general mood is like, um, and so on. So there's several other factors. But generally, you can think about it as um, kind of how your child, you know, what kind of flows along with your child through their life. Um, so that may be that your child wakes up in the morning with tons of energy, um, and you're kind of more of a night owl, that you wake up more sluggish. Um, and what we found in the research is it's actually the match or mismatch between your temperament and your child's temperament that makes a really big difference in how well you're getting along. When is it appropriate age-wise to speak with a kid about his or her temperament? And what does that conversation look like? Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's a particular age to which to start these. I think as soon as children are able to be a little bit self-aware, you can talk to them in age-appropriate ways about it. Um, so for example, say you have a four or five-year-old and they're really, really active in the morning and you, you know, are not active in the morning and you need a little time to wake up. You know, you can even say something like, you know, I know you love to like kick that ball in the morning, uh, but I just want a moment of quiet in the morning. So if you want to kick the ball, you can do it in another room because for me, you know, I want to have a little quiet. So either you can sit here with me quietly or you can do, you know, so explaining that how we like to be um, and how we are as people can really start early. And finally, different kids require different tones. You cite the book, The Orchid and the Dandelion and explaining how most kids fall in the dandelion category, which is being more adaptive to a range of situations. And around 20% of kids are classified as orchids. That is more biologically sensitive to both good and bad environments. One of my kids is a dandelion and the other is definitely an orchid. How should I be speaking with a sensitive kid differently from the other one? Yeah, so one important thing to recognize is that um, your impact as a parent is especially critical for that orchid child because they are sort of more sensitive and more, um, more adaptive in the sense that they're going to um, notice more how you're speaking to them. They're going to have stronger reactions to it. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say, well, say X to this child, say Y to this child, but you do want to make some extra space and time around the conversations with the orchid child in order to see, well, how is my conversation impacting them? 
you know, do they seem overly upset by something I didn't mean to upset them? Do they, you know, not even notice when I'm trying to get them to do something and I need to change my tack? So just being a little bit more intentional, a little bit more aware with that child, and especially creating, if it's possible, you know, a little time every day or every week in which you connect one-on-one with that child um, goes a long way in that. Cool. Well, uh, she is Rebecca Rowland. The book is The Art of Talking with Children, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Creativity, and Confidence in Kids. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Rebecca, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this excellent book. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thank you to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forager Digital. Thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.